This episode contains descriptions of body horror, ableism, and mental illness. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. The following is an excerpt from E. F. Benson's The Thing in the Hall, where a spiritualist explains his suspicions about a strange presence in his house. There are good things in this world, are there not? And bad things. Impulses of some sort direct both sides, and some power suggests the impulses. Well, I went into this spiritualistic business impartially. I learned to expect, to throw open the door into the soul, and I said, anyone may come in. And I think something has applied for admission. I did not, and do not ask good spirits to come in. I only threw open the door. Hi everyone, I'm Alastair Murden, and this is Haunted Places Ghost Stories, a Spotify original from Parcast. Ghost stories have arisen from every century and every corner of the world, from the streets of Victorian Whitechapel to the temples of Japan. Whether seated around the campfire or curled up with a pair of headphones, we return to them time and again to feel our skin crawl and our hearts race. Episodes of Ghost Stories are inspired by classic short stories from some of history's greatest authors. The following version is our own unique take. It may feel familiar in some ways and different in others. We hope you enjoy it. You can find episodes of Ghost Stories and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. Today's story, The Thing in the Hall, comes from celebrated satirist and horror writer E. F. Benson. First published in 1912, this atmospheric tale features a spiritualist, a skeptic, and a creature so horrifying and otherworldly that it helped place Benson in H.P. Lovecraft's Horror Hall of Fame. We'll investigate a deadly seance after this. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. As Inspector Jack Bonney ended his day, he decided he had earned himself a pint. 
Bonnie wasn't one to regularly indulge in a drink. He was a practical man, and practical men didn't spend their hours wallowing in glasses of gin and the company of habitual drunkards. But that evening, as he put away his papers, he planned to head to the pub next to New Scotland Yard headquarters. He was just putting on his hat when Constable Perry Braithwaite ran up to his desk, shaking like a man lost in a snowstorm. They need you at Cressford Houses, sir. Something strange has happened. Bonnie didn't know Cressford Houses well. He hadn't worked much in the East End of London since the Ripper murders a decade ago, and he'd been a young constable then. Now, Bonnie had moved up in the world. His strong stomach and quick thinking had earned him an assignment as an inspector in more delicate matters. But the Crestford houses were a place that seemed to be as far from delicate as anywhere could be. As Bonnie's carriage approached, the decaying tenements seemed to loom ahead in the heavy grey haze. Outside, on the ashy brick steps, a woman sat, nursing her child, her cheeks red in the heavy summer heat. Bonnie nodded at her politely and walked into the crumbling building. Inside, several constables clustered around the stairwell, muttering to each other nervously. They reminded Bonnie of children hiding behind their mother's skirts. He cleared his throat and the gaggle of officers went quiet. Will someone tell me why I'm here? Are there irregularities with the case? The men looked at him blankly. After a moment, one of the constables spoke up. There's been a death, sir, or a murder. Two uh, gentlemen of distinction reported the incident. They're waiting inside. Bonnie looked around. And none of you have taken their statements. The embarrassing silence was interrupted by a loud thump from the back of the hall. Bonnie scanned the stairwell but couldn't find the source of the sound. He shook off the distraction and turned back to the men. There were bigger concerns to attend to. He asked them for more details of the incident, but all he got was a constable's shaking finger pointing to a first-floor apartment. Bonnie walked brusquely down the hall and tried the doorknob. The door opened without complaint. He took two steps into the apartment and stopped. The two men waiting inside really were men of distinction. Their clothes were rich purple, deep red and dark green, and the lines of their suits were more distinct than the average gentleman's. A style far more daring than anyone in this neighborhood could afford. They stood close together, whispering in insistent tones apparently unaware that the inspector had entered. Bonnie took the opportunity to observe them. The one on the left had the steady hand of either a doctor or a killer. The other was bespectacled and disheveled. His red shirt collar popped rakishly up around his neck. The man's eyes darted about in apprehension, and his hand kept brushing his friend's forearm. He seemed to pay the inspector no mind. Bonnie was so unsettled by their unusual behavior that it took him a few moments to rip his gaze away from them and find the body. A woman lay on the blue Turkish rug. She appeared to have fallen from a chair at the table at the center of the parlor. 
She was in her mid-twenties, sprawled on the floor, her neck twisted with so much force that she was nearly looking behind herself. Bonnie realized he knew this woman. Sakharina Navratavlova was a spirit medium or, in his opinion, an actress. She claimed to be able to speak to the departed, but Bonnie knew it was just a scam that took advantage of grieving families. Scotland Yard had been trying to convince her victims to complain to the magistrate to no avail. And now, it was too late. Bonnie hadn't expected Sakharina to live in a place as dingy as this, but perhaps this was why she scammed so prolifically. Maybe she needed her victims' money more than they did. Bonnie found himself beginning to pity her. He pushed the thought away. Sakharina's body was in pristine condition, except for the slashes cut deep into her throat. They were animal-like in their savagery, but human in their precision. Whoever had done this was certainly a monster, and a clever one too. As Bonnie stepped closer to the body, the two handsomely clad men finally took notice of him and stopped their hushed conversation to introduce themselves. The man with the steady hands was Dr. Francis Ashton, a specialist in mental disorders. His companion was Louis Fielder. He enthusiastically shook Bonnie's hand, saying, I'm a man about town, a dabbler. Dr. Ashton gave him a warning look, then assured Bonnie, We're the woman's neighbors and friends. Bonnie glanced toward the hall. It was highly irregular to leave two murder suspects alone in a room with the victim, friends or not. What were the constables thinking? A loud knock sounded from the hall. Bonnie told whoever it was to come in, but the door remained closed. Fielder smiled and nudged Ashton. Ashton hissed to his friend. This isn't a game, you know. Bonnie pretended to ignore them as he knelt to examine the body. There was no blood on the floor and no weapon nearby that could have cut her that deeply. He looked into her wounds to see the shreds of her vocal cords and something viscous clinging to them, a sort of mucus. Yet it was the most inorganic shade of green he'd ever seen. It reminded him more of absinthe than anything that should emerge from the human body. No, it wasn't mucus. It was almost a slime. Another thump came from the hall. Bonnie didn't bother to hide his annoyance. Miss Navratavlova has very loud neighbors, presuming this is her flat. Fielder shook his head. No, no. We paid for them all to leave for the evening so she could work in peace. Bonnie raised an eyebrow and asked what it was Sakharina was working on. Dr. Ashton stepped in before Fielder could reply. What Louis means is he asked her for her assistance to settle an argument between the two of us. But Miss Navratavlova was taken in by my friend's charismatic delusion and was ultimately harmed by it. Bonnie didn't like the man's clinical air. So you contend she killed herself? Fielder laughed far too heartily for the circumstances. <laughs> no, 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 Inspector. Sakharina was slain by a force of spirit. Bonnie blinked at him. What the 
devil does that mean? Another thump boomed from the hall. For God's sake, come in! Bonnie shouted. But again, there was no answer. Dr. Ashton and Mr. Fielder shared a quick look before offering to show the inspector where they had been when Sakarina was killed. Bonnie nodded warily. Ashton and Fielder sat down on opposite sides of the table in the usual positions for table-turning, a spiritualist practice where people placed their hands on a table and waited for the great beyond to move it. Bonnie had seen plenty of so-called mediums pull off the trick, but the motion was always so slight that it was almost undetectable, much like those spirit boards that were all the rage. Fielder and Ashton's fingers intertwined slightly. As abnormal as it was, the doctor did seem to have a calming effect on Fielder. He settled down and took a breath. Then he explained to Bonnie just what kind of argument the two men had been attempting to settle. I have been making contact with an entity from the world beyond ours, but I struggled to convince it to manifest to the good doctor's satisfaction. So you see, we commissioned the services of Miss Navratavlova. Fielder was interrupted by yet another thump from the hall. Inspector Bonnie ignored the strange eye contact between the two men and marched over to the door. He threw it open, shouting, Will you just come in already? But the hall was empty. The constables had moved outside to the stoop, too far away to have knocked. Bonnie stood at the doorway listening for the sound of a servant moving about or perhaps one of Sakarina's neighbors returning home. But the house was as still as the grave. He was overcome for a moment by a horrible feeling of being assessed as a great predator examines its prey and a primitive sense of panic rose within him. Bonnie shook his head. This was why he hated spiritualists. They were very good at the art of suggestion. He turned back to Fielder and Ashton. What was that? Another one of her tricks? Or your tricks? Mr. Fielder, do you also charge people money to talk to their dead? Or does your wife know about your affinity for Miss Navratavlova? Ashton replied indignantly, We're unmarried. Before Bonnie could ask more about their friendship, another thump echoed from inside the room. He looked around in panic while Fielder explained, Inspector, that was the thing saying hello. Bonnie's patience was gone. Excuse me? Did you just say the thing? Fielder nodded as if it was obvious. It communicates mostly in knocks and raps, and you weren't so far off when you mentioned the devil. I don't know much about this entity, but I am sure it is an agent of evil, and poor Sakarina would agree. She was able to make it fully manifest. Bonnie glared at him. I don't see how this thing is relevant to the case at hand. Fielder looked puzzled. Because it killed her, of course. And, Inspector, you just invited it back in. Up next, The Thing Appears. 
Wayne Simmons spent 27 years undercover for the CIA. When he retired from spy work, he got a big break. Terrorism analyst on Fox News. Then he met Kent Clisby. So I'm a real CIA guy. This is total nonsense. I'm Alex French, and I'm here to figure out who's telling the truth. Was Wayne Simmons a spy, or was he nothing but a con man? Imposters is a Spotify original from Parcast. Follow and listen exclusively on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. Inspector Jack Bonney stood in the bare tenement living room in what felt like an infinite silence. He had always been a skeptic of spiritualism. In fact, he enjoyed taking down so-called mediums like Sakharina Navratilova. But now, Sakharina was lying dead on her living room floor, and her odd client Louis Fielder had just told Bonnie that no human had killed her but some thing. Something that Fielder told Bonnie he'd now unintentionally invited back inside. After a long moment, Bonnie turned to Dr. Ashton, Fielder's very close confidant. What do you think of all of this? This thing your friend claims was in the hall? Ashton shrugged. I am amazed, Inspector. I believe Louis has unwittingly used his considerable charisma to pull us all into his fantasy. Miss Navratilova was particularly susceptible to it, and it cost her her life. Bonnie raised an eyebrow. So she clawed her own throat out then. Ashton soured, and he stammered something about him and Fielder not seeing it clearly. Bonnie turned to Fielder. So as I understand it, Mr. Fielder, you invited a spirit into the seance, a dangerous spirit. For the first time, Fielder looked sheepish. That's right, Inspector. Bonnie sighed. He didn't wish to indulge in such nonsense, but he needed these men to give their accounts of events, no matter how bizarre they may be. The inspector righted Sakharina's chair and sat down, placing his hands on the table. Anyway, go on, show me this thing. Ashton backed away. I don't believe that will be good for anyone's health, Inspector. Louis has had a very long day. It will be good for your alibi, Dr. Ashton, Bonnie countered. He nodded to the chairs. Sit, gentlemen. Prove it to me. I know you want to. There was a light in Fielder's eyes now, something wild and angry, proud of what he'd done. It was this light that Bonnie hoped to capture. It was one he often saw in murderer's eyes too. Perhaps Fielder knew this. Still, the spiritualist nodded to Ashton, telling him to sit. Then he flicked the switch to the overhead light. He lit some candles at the center of the table. And the seance began. Inspector Bonney waited in the dark, straining his ears for signs of trouble. 
he heard Fielder walk back to the table. There was a scrape across the floor as he pulled his chair out and sat. Then there came a huff of annoyance from Dr. Ashton. Interminable silence followed. Bonnie thought of Sakarina's injuries. Could such precise slashes have been executed in this darkness? Had Fielder dashed to the switch and turned the light on at the last minute so steady-handed Dr. Ashton could strike true? It was quite possible. A soft thump came from near the door, then a series of bumps that bounced in an offbeat rhythm growing closer. A spark of light then hovered above the table within the ring of candles. One spark died, then it was replaced by another. Fielder whispered, Isn't it fantastic? The lights strung themselves together in a chain inside the circle of flames. They grew until they illuminated the other two men's pale faces. Bonnie had seen such parlor tricks before, so he wasn't surprised when a sudden draft rushed past them, extinguishing the candles and plunging the room into darkness. As much as Bonnie wanted to be impatient, or even bored, all he felt was that horrible paranoia again, that certainty that he was being watched. The moon emerged from a cloud, allowing faint light through the windows. Bonnie was glad. But then, on the opposite wall, a shadow began to take form. There was nothing human about it. It was an amorphous blob that looked almost like a slug, if that slug was six feet tall and ten feet long. The edges of the shadow wavered, suggesting it was only a fraction of the entity's true mass. Like the creature was peering through from a tear in reality that led to another world. Then, something slithered behind Bonnie's chair. He heard the wet sound of a creature moving. When he turned his head, however, there was nothing there. The table started to vibrate. Bonnie placed a hand on it, trying to put a stop to any unseen mechanism the spiritualist had put in place. But he wasn't strong enough. He watched in awe as the table spun faster and faster under his fingertips. Bonnie pushed back his chair in alarm. Stop this, he called out, though he wasn't sure who he was speaking to. Come inside, Fielder whispered to the shadow on the wall. Ashton pleaded softly, Louis, please, don't. At first, it seemed that Fielder and his trick obeyed his dear friend Ashton, and the table came to an abrupt halt. Bonnie breathed a sigh of relief that the whole experience must be over. As he breathed, however, he noticed that his breath crystallized in front of him. In the dead of summer, the room felt like the polar north. A nasty wind swelled up around the table, blowing so hard that Bonnie could barely hear anything. He began to panic. These tricks were far too advanced for even the most cunning medium. Fielder looked at him with the same wild look, then banged his hand against the table. A fire raised up in the hearth. It spread out and licked hungrily at the walls. Despite the blaze, the men still shook from the cold. Bonnie knew he should stop this, 
but he was too frightened of where the creature was and what it could do to move. Then he saw it. The thing, as Fielder had called it, had finally come into the light of the fire. It was made of a pale, gelatinous substance. The ends of its form vibrated as though it was still deciding what size to take. The thing, for there truly was no more apt name, crept forward slowly, leaving a trail of glowing green liquid behind it. Bonnie realized this substance was what he'd seen in Sakarina's throat. But how had it gotten there? Fielder jumped out of his seat with such excitement that the chair flung backwards. Come on! He screamed. Dr. Ashton's hand went to Fielder's again. You've made your point, Louis. I see it. This can end. But it was not up to Fielder. In a flurry of movement, the thing lurched toward him. But just as it seemed to be about to barrel Fielder over, it disappeared entirely. The fire billowed from the hearth as Fielder's glee came to an abrupt end. His features contorted, each line in his face magnified by the fiery glow. He hit himself in the chest repeatedly, and Dr. Ashton screamed for Fielder to stop. Fielder gripped his throat, then his forehead. His pupils widened to cover his eyes in darkness. He tried to cough, but it sounded as though there was something caught in his throat. His chest folded in on itself, the ribcage cracking like a flimsy web of sticks as he tried again to make something leave his throat. Then, Fielder stopped moving. He froze, his body falling to the floor, just as the fire snuffed itself out. Bonnie's legs shook violently as he made his way out of his seat and toward the wall. He groped for the electric light and flipped it on. There were no marks on the wallpaper where the fire had been, nor was there a trail of liquid on the floor. Even the chairs were in order, tucked neatly against the table. Were it not for Fielder and Sakarina's bodies on the floor, it felt like nothing of consequence had happened there. Ashton sank to his knees next to Fielder and sat there, frozen. Bonnie rushed to the door and called for the constables. He then made his way back to Fielder's body. The man had already turned a putrid shade of grey. His corpse was heavy, as though rigor mortis had set in several hours ahead of schedule, and his red shirt collar had come undone. On the sides of his neck were two silvery scars, half healed and identical in placement to the ones on Sakarina's neck. Bonnie hadn't noticed them before, but he couldn't take his eyes off them now. Dr. Ashton, when did Fielder get these marks? Ashton looked shell-shocked. I found them this morning. He, he claimed they were proof of the supernatural. And when I laughed, he brought me to the medium to show me, and, well... Bonnie didn't need him to finish the thought. Ashton looked up at Bonnie full of pain and regret. I understand, sir, that you feel you are merely operating as an instrument of the law, but I have found that the law fails to comprehend so much, as does medicine. 
he looked back to Fielder, inconsolable. Bonnie stood for a moment, silent. He wanted to disagree with Ashton, to insist that he was wrong. But Bonnie could not deny what he had seen. Nothing he knew, the law, science, nothing could explain it. And just like Fielder, Ashton and Sakarina, he would be marked by what he witnessed forever. Bonnie squeezed Dr. Ashton's shoulder. I am sorry for the loss of your friend. Please stay in town until we finish the inquest. Ashton nodded numbly as the constables swarmed the apartment. Bonnie donned his hat and coat and headed home. He poured himself a strong glass of brandy, then went into the bathroom to freshen up in the mirror. Bonnie observed that he was paler than usual after the experience. He also felt a tickle in his throat. He tried to clear it with a cough, but it lingered. Something pushed against his chest. It must be the makings of a cold. No surprise, given the freezing wind in Sakarina's strange home, but Bonnie was surprised when the phlegm that he coughed up onto the white sink was a very familiar shade of absinthe green. Bonnie splashed cold water on his face in a panic, then studied his reflection in the mirror. He watched himself for a moment, concerned, then chuckled. He was just seeing things. It was the last thought he had before two thin cuts slashed across his throat. Edward Frederick Benson came from a literary family. His father, Edward White Benson, was an author, schoolmaster, and Anglican priest who was appointed the Archbishop of Canterbury in 1882 when E.F. was 15. One might think that the Archbishop would disapprove of the spiritualist themes in his son's stories, but E. F. Benson's father was actually a founding member of the Cambridge Ghost Society. The horror writer M. R. James was a friend of the family along with Henry James, and the latter's iconic horror novella, The Turn of the Screw, was actually inspired by an incident the Archbishop related to him in 1895. E. F. Benson and his brothers all wrote well-received ghost stories, but he is probably best known for his Map and Lucia series and other satirical stories. His works were campy mixes of slice-of-life absurdism and semi-autobiographical character studies, and he brought this same wit to his supernatural fiction. While the interdimensional threat Ashton and Fielder face is truly horrifying, they meet it with an affectionate camaraderie that reflects the closeness Benson shared with the members of his queer community as a gay man. But do not mistake the character's jovial manner for the author's disbelief in the occult. Benson avidly defended spiritualism, saying it was an extension of natural law. Mediums, he suggested, were simply opening themselves to another consciousness by widening their own. 
He so deeply believed in the power of supernatural evil that he wrote an essay on the dangers of demonic possession. He came by these fears honestly. Benson family rumor says their patriarch, the Archbishop of Canterbury, entered the church after trying to summon dark forces via two crystal balls in his youth. Whatever he saw was frightening enough to have him join the Anglican church and hide the crystal balls away in a cupboard with a crucifix between them for protection. Growing up with the implements of dark magic in your house is certainly enough to put the fear of God in you and the fear of something else. That horrible, unknowable something else that dwells in worlds we can never understand. That thing that awaits just outside in the hall. A thing that wants in. Thanks again for tuning into Haunted Places Ghost Stories. We will be back on Thursday with a new episode. You can find more episodes of Ghost Stories and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. See you on the other side. Haunted Places Ghost Stories is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Kenny Hobbs, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Erin Larson. This episode of Haunted Places Ghost Stories was written by Lil Ritter and Jennifer Roche, with writing assistance by Alex Garland, fact-checking by Bennett Logan, and research by Mickey Taylor. I'm Alastair Murden. <laughs>